while they're finding their seats, why don't you open your Bibles to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. A song of a sense of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Thus ends our reading of God's life-giving word. May all who hear it understand that they are reliant upon the Lord Almighty. We are now in our eighth week of these Psalms of Ascent. So we're a little over halfway through them. And these Psalms of Ascent, they're really songs, right? Songs that are meant to prepare a person's heart as they come into the Lord's presence to worship. And thus far, we have seen songs of joy. We've seen songs of lament. We've seen songs about God's justice. We've seen songs about God's mercy. Songs of remembrance. Now today we're looking at what is known as a wisdom song. A song that was written by King Solomon himself, right? The man who sought wisdom over and above long life and wealth. Now the goal of any wisdom literature is not to show how clever we are, but to demonstrate our areas of weakness. They're written in order that we might learn, in order that we might grow. These words are meant to give us instruction. Consider Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Here, King Solomon gives to us the purpose of such wisdom literature. He says this, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understanding a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. And so wisdom literature is, is meant to give us understanding and, and insight. It is to instruct us in, in righteousness and justice. It is written in order that the hearer might increase in learning. That the hearer might please God. And it doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're old or young. It doesn't matter if you're educated or uneducated. 
It is a person who pays heed. The person who not only listens, but then puts into practice what he hears. That is a person who shall become wise. And this is the reason why our psalm was written. That you might increase in wisdom as you pay heed to God's instruction. And there is a specific instruction that that you should take from this psalm. And yet before we get to that, let's look at how this psalm is structured. Now now at first glance, Psalm 127, it almost seems as if it's comprised of two different psalms. And that's because at first glance, when you look at verses 1 and 2, they they seem to have a different theme altogether than verses 3 through 5. And in verses 1 and 2, they speak of the futility of a life without God. And yet in verses 3 through 5, Solomon's speaking of the blessings that come from having children. And so with this being the case, you're you're kind of left wondering to yourself, what, what do these two things have in common? And yet when you dig deep enough, you'll see that there is this underlying theme that binds these two together. So let's look at this psalm from a different angle. Let's look at it from the different categories that our psalmist gives. In fact, there are four different characters or four different roles to whom our psalmist is addressing. In the first part of verse 1, he's speaking to the builder, to this one who builds the house to provide shelter. And in the second half of verse 1, he's then speaking to the watchman, the one who stands upon the city wall and keeps a watchful eye for approaching enemies. Then in verse 2, he speaks to the provider, the one who labors in his field throughout the day in order to produce a harvest. And then finally, in verses 3 through 5, he is speaking to the father, to the one whom God blesses with sons and daughters. And what is interesting about these four roles is that they, they are each providing a basic necessity of life. The the builder provides shelter. The watchman provides security. The provider, well, he provides, right? He provides sustenance. And the father provides loving care. These are the must-haves in order for life to flourish. And so it is in these four roles that we begin to see our theme. And that theme is is the word reliance. This is what our psalmist wants to demonstrate to his audience, that that in all aspects of life, we cannot rely upon our own strength. Rather, we need to become reliant. We need to become reliant upon God, and we need to become reliant upon the people whom God has placed into our lives. Let's see how this plays out. Look again at our first verse. Look at the builder. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And 
in this first verse, and really in, in the verses that, that, that follow, Solomon makes this effort to point out that, that vanity comes from human effort. This is why he will repeatedly use this word vain. He, he wants to demonstrate the, the futility, the, the emptiness of things that are achieved apart from God. And the first futile work that he points out is this construction of a home. What goes into building a home? If you're a builder, you, you will know that the most essential part in the construction of a home is, is laying down a good foundation. The foundation not only provides stability for, for the rest of the structure, but it, but it also acts as a protection against natural disasters. You see, a strong foundation will help keep walls upright against mighty winds. It will also prevent the, the flood from sweeping everything away. And even in the event of an earthquake, a, a strong foundation will be able to hold things together. But not only do you need a strong foundation, but you will also need to build these dependable walls, right? As well as a reliable roof. These are the things that will fend off the elements, whether that be rain or snow or hail. And yet for all these things, whether it's the foundation, whether it's the walls or the roof, you, you need to use the right materials as well. You need materials that are strong. You need materials that will last. And that's why a good builder will never cut costs by using inferior products. But here's the thing. You can be the best builder in the world. And you can lay down the strongest foundation. You can construct the thickest walls. You can place upon those walls a, a, the most solid roof that there is. And yet there is still no guarantee that that house will be standing upright the next day. For there could come along an earthquake that is too great. There may come a flood that is too powerful. There, there may come a wind that is too mighty. And that house that you built will meet its end no matter how well it is constructed. So what does it mean when our author says, unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. I mean, I, I don't think we're going to see God coming down to this earth and start constructing houses anytime soon. So what is our psalmist getting at? What he's getting at is that we should not put our trust simply in what men can build with their hands. Yes, we need shelters. Yes, we need to live in homes. But, but if, if you think that your shelter solely comes from the four walls and roof and foundation that you live in, well, then in the end, you're going to be disappointed. For true shelter comes from God and God alone. And he is our only guarantee that we have. How, how often in Scripture is God described as our refuge? How often is he depicted as, as a shelter from the storm? Psalm 34, verse 8 says this, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 91, verse 1 and 2, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. 
I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And here's the thing. What, what we construct with our hands can only do so much. There, it, it is no guarantee. And yet when you make your shelter in the Lord Most High, when you take refuge in the one who created all things, well, then you can find no better home. And that's because only he is that eternal home that can never be torn down. And I think that is a point that Solomon is making here. You know, Kim and I, when we moved to Oxford, we were very, very fortunate. The housing market was ridiculous. Homes were selling instantly and above market price. And yet we found this home that was perfect for our family. And God blessed us with it. And yet as great as our house is, I know that it's not my permanent home. That it's only a temporary shelter that God has provided for me now. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Well, if the builder strives for shelter, well, then the watchman strives for security. And this is the next concern that our psalmist brings to bear. Will you be safe from your enemies? Look at the last part of verse 1. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The ancient cities of old were all walled cities. And these walls were constructed not only as a means for protection, but, but also as, as a deterrent. They, they were meant to discourage the enemy. And that's because any enemy who came across a walled city, well, well, they would have to count the costs before making an assault. For, for they would know that they would suffer losses as these walls gave a huge tactical advantage. And yet if an invader did decide to attack, well, the smart thing to do would be to attack in the dark of night while the city was sleeping, while the city was unprepared. And that's why these cities needed watchmen, guards who would be posted upon these walls in order that any approaching armies might be spotted, in order that the city would have time to prepare, would have time to defend themselves. Today, we don't so much rely upon walls, but we do have watchmen. We, we find our security in our armed forces. We, we pour out our tax dollars into the U, U.S. military, making sure it's head and shoulders above all of our enemies. We've built satellites and, and drones that spy on enemy countries, making sure that they don't get the jump on us. 
And then we make strategic alliances with other nations in order that we might feel secure. These are our watchmen. And yet again, these things are no guarantee that we will avoid war, are they? They, they do not assure us that our nation will not be attacked. Because all it takes is one self-deluded despot to set the world on fire. And so when our psalmist tells us, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. What he is saying is that the, the military might of men is no guarantee for a secure nation. Now, does this mean that we should abandon our military? That we should just get rid of it altogether and simply trust that God will be our protector? Well, of course not. What he is saying is that, is that we should not be reliant upon our own strength. That if we are not trusting in, in the Lord for our security, then the only thing that we truly have accomplished is establishing a false sense of security. Look at, look at Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We could extrapolate this to modern times, right? We might say some trust in nuclear weapons and some trust in tactical drones, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Or consider the example of young David. When all of Israel's men, including Israel's king, were, were living in the fearful shadow of Goliath, it was young David who saw things clearly. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 36 and 37. Here, here we see David making his case before King Saul that he should be the one to fight this Goliath. Just listen to David's words. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of, the, of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. You see, David had this mind among himself that God was Israel's true protector. Consider David's words later on as he was approaching this giant in battle. Listen to his response as, as the giant mocked him because of his diminutive size. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. 
And I will give your dead, the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Kind of gets your blood rushing, doesn't it? You see, David, he wasn't concerned with his own deficiencies. He wasn't bothered by his lack of weaponry or how big this giant was. And that's because he knew that the Lord was on his side. Dear friends, if the Lord is on your side, then, then you can have no stronger ally. There is not an enemy in all creation who can defy you. David was reliant upon the Lord his God. And it was in him that he found his security. And if you are in Christ, if you have turned from your sins and trusted in him for his forgiveness, well, guess what? You can find eternal security. And that's because Jesus is our watchman. He does not slumber. He's the one who protects us from all of our enemies. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. We've seen the builder. We've seen the watchman. But what about the provider? Look at verse 2 of our psalm. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now the basic work of a provider during the time of Solomon was that of farming, right? And farming is difficult work. It requires countless hours of toil, getting fields ready by tilling the soil, sowing seeds into the ground in the hopes of gaining a harvest, making sure your plants have enough water to drink, making sure they are fertilized and well-nourished, protecting your crops from things like insects, birds, from foragers such as deer, and then at the end of the season, completing the difficult but joyous labor of gathering it all into the barn. Bottom line, there is a lot to do if you want to reap a harvest. And now imagine farming in the ancient world, where you don't have all of our modern-day equipment, pesticides. Simply said, farming was grueling, grueling work. Yet what does our psalmist say? It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. So is hard work bad? Absolutely not. There, there are many places in Scripture where God commend, commends hard work. In fact, even our psalmist Solomon advises his son in the book of Proverbs to work diligently. Look at Proverbs 10, verse 4. 
A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 12, verse 27. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. Proverbs 13, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. And it's not just Solomon who thinks this way, but even the Apostle Paul commended hard work. Look at, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Look at verses 6 through 12. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when, when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. I mean, bottom line, hard work should be commended. It should be seen as a good thing. And yet it is not the only thing. And when work becomes the dominant part of your life, when it overshadows everything else, when you become reliant upon it, well, hard work can actually lead to unfruitfulness. Consider the busyness of Martha on the day when the Lord Jesus Christ visited her home. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And so you, you see Luke highlights for us the contrast between, between Martha and her sister Mary. Martha made herself very, very busy. And yet Mary was simply sitting at the Lord's feet and listening to him teach. And what did Martha's busyness lead to? It led to her having a disgruntled attitude and a complaining spirit. Martha's predicament was that her work had taken her focus off of what was most important. This caused resentment within her heart. Resentment towards her sister, who was simply worshiping Jesus. And resentment towards Jesus, who was not making her sister help. 
You see, Martha's work had become a distraction. It had taken her eyes off of Jesus and then placed them upon herself. And I'm sure Martha was telling herself, well, this work that I'm doing is in the service of the Lord. And yet, instead of bringing her closer to Christ, it only created further distance. Mary, on the other hand, chose what was better. She chose the one thing that was necessary to sit at her master's feet and to listen to his voice. And this is the point that Solomon is making in our psalm. That, that in our efforts to make our lives better through hard work, we are actually making our lives worse. For we miss out on the good things in life. Like spending time with our families. Like enjoying a meal with a good friend. Like sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to his voice. Or like our psalmist says, getting some sleep. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Consider that for a moment. There is a passive element when it comes to trusting in God. And what I mean by that is, is that sometimes faith requires us to be inactive. It requires us to, to sit back and to wait upon the Lord. And there's no greater passive activity than sleeping, is there? I, I can't think of another. Rest, it, it is both a characteristic and a fruit of faith. And that's because those who rest will strengthen their faith. And those who have faith, well, they will find rest. The two, the two go hand in hand. And yet the laborer who works sun up to sundown will only wear himself out. And then what good will he be? Our psalmist, he encourages his listener to find rest and to trust that the Lord will take care of everything else. I mean, think about it. Even God after he had created all things, found rest. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Dear friends, rest is about having trust in God. It is about being reliant upon him, understanding that he will take care of all of your needs. Because when you rely upon him, well, you no longer need to be anxious nor worried. Because you trust that the Lord is both capable and willing to take care of all these things. I mean, listen to what Jesus says about having too much anxiety. Look at, look at Matthew chapter 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? 
And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They, they, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? What, what Jesus is telling us here and what our psalmist is telling us in our psalm is that, is that you have a heavenly Father who wants to look after you. And while it is good to work hard, don't let that hard work become your whole life. Don't let anxiety, don't let worry control you. For there are better things that you could be focusing upon. And yet once you understand that it is God who is our great provider, once you become reliant upon him, it, it is then that you will find your greatest rest. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So we've seen the builder, we've seen the watchman, we've seen the provider. Let's look at our last role in our psalm. Let's look at the role of the father. Look at the last three verses. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is a man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Most societies throughout the ancient world viewed children as a blessing. And the more children that you had, the more blessed you were. In fact, it's only been in recent times that this view has has shifted. In today's society, children are no longer seen as a blessing, but as a hindrance. And this isn't just in the Western world, but this is pretty much a worldwide epidemic. For the past few decades, we have seen declining birth rates pretty much across the globe. Only in Africa and in some Middle Eastern countries do we see birth rates that are equivalent to what was the norm throughout most of human history. And that's because in our attempts to become these self-sufficient men and self-sufficient women, we have devalued the importance of children. You see, in the past, when much of society was dependent upon farming, children 
children were the ones who could be counted on to do much of the labor. The sons would help their fathers in the field, while the daughters were expected to help their mothers by maintaining the house and preparing the meals. And while having another child meant having to feed another mouth, it also meant that more could be accomplished and that there would be a greater harvest. But it wasn't just that these children were good helpers, but it was also because they were viewed as a parent's retirement plan as well. Because once you grew old, once, once you had become too worn out to take care of yourself, well, you were going to need your children to look after you. And the man and the woman who had many children, well, they were the ones who were looked after the best. But even beyond the roles that they would fulfill within their families, there was a societal, societal duty as well to have children. For a nation was only as strong as its army. And so it was important for sons to be born if there was to be any security against their foreign enemies. And that might be where this metaphor that Solomon uses comes from. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. And thus a godly man who has been blessed with many sons need not be afraid. And yet beyond all of this, beyond the labor they could perform, beyond the care that they could give to their elderly parents, beyond how they could serve their own nation, children were also seen as a blessing because of the joy that they would bring into the lives of their parents. I don't know about you, but the biggest smile that I ever saw was in the smile of my wife when she gave birth to our children. You, you will never see a bigger smile than that. For even though that child of ours had done nothing at all, somehow that child brought inexpressible joy to my wife. And to me as well. Now, don't get me wrong. This psalm is not a mandate to have the largest family that you can possibly have. If you're not like the Duggars, that's okay. These verses are simply telling us that children are a blessing. They are a gift from God himself. A good and generous God. And they are meant to bring us both joy and assistance. And do you know what one of the greatest things about having children is? It's that they teach us, right? They, they teach us that we are not these independent people, these lone rangers that don't need to rely on anyone else. For when they are very young, they are the very expression of dependency. They are a reminder to us of how feeble and fragile we once were. I mean, I don't think I ever appreciated my parents enough until I had children on my own. But not only do they teach us when, we are, when they are young, but as we grow older and we begin to see these roles being reversed, they teach us again. As, as they grow older, as they get stronger and smarter, 
and are become are learning how to figure out how to live life on their own, suddenly you are becoming more feeble and more dependent. And you are no longer able to do all that you once did. And it is now your turn to start depending upon them. And in ancient times, this was vitally, vitally important, like I said before. I mean, an elderly widow was typically cast out of society unless she had a child, a son, who would take care of her needs. And even old men who, who could no longer labor, they were simply discarded. But if they had children, well, well then they were blessed. For they would always have a home in which they were welcomed. And bottom line, it is, it is through God's gift of children that, that you learn that you are not an island. That you are reliant. And notice that this kind of reliance, it, it, it isn't directly focused upon God, but it is focused upon God's gift that he has given to us. God has put people into our lives for a reason. And that's because man was never meant to be autonomous. Man was never meant to be independent. Man was never meant to be alone. And whether you have children or not, God has still placed people in your life. They could be family, they could be friends. They could be neighbors. They could be members of your church. God has placed these people in your life for a reason. And the reason is because you are a reliant creature. And you can't do life in your own strength. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. And yet it is God who is our true father is he not? And as our true father, he has not chosen to bless himself with a son. Rather, he has chose to bless us with his son. Jesus Christ is our true heritage. He is like that arrow in the hand of the warrior that takes down our enemy. And we are not put to shame when we speak with our enemy at the gates. Because no matter how much our enemy holds our own sins against us, we know that those sins were taken care of at the cross of Christ. Dear friends, if you are in Jesus, if you have turned from your sins, and if you have trusted in him, then you have that perfect father who will always be there for you and who has given to you his only begotten son, in order that you too might call him Father. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Lord is our builder, Unless the Lord builds the house. The Lord is our watchman. Unless the Lord watches over the city. The Lord is our provider. 
for he gives to his beloved sleep. The Lord is our Father. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. What our psalmist is telling us is that in all aspects of life, we cannot rely upon our own strength. Rather, we need to learn to become reliant. Reliant upon God and reliant upon the people whom God has placed upon and into our lives. We are not an island. We must look to him. Only in him can we truly find the peace that we need. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that too often we are reliant upon our own strength. We don't look to you enough in our daily lives, and thus we become anxious and worried about matters that are in your control. And so we ask that you would help us to repent of this sin. Help us to become reliant upon you. For you are our builder. And you are our watchman. You are our provider. And you are our heavenly father. You have satisfied all of our needs through your son, our true heritage, Jesus Christ. And so we ask now that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us to learn to become more and more reliant upon you each and every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.